Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a number of Bibles on the tables just outside the door there. And uh, let me encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you should feel free to take one of those and keep it. Uh, Write your name in the front and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we turn to Galatians, uh, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you again to recognize that that you are God, that you are the sovereign of the universe, uh, that you are the God who created all things, but you are also the God who has shown us mercy in your son Jesus. And we come to receive your mercy again. We come to receive from you through your word. Um, Jesus said and Moses said in Deuteronomy that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we come to you to hear from you, to feed on your word, to be nourished by it, so that we might have the strength we need to go out and live for you in the world. Father, strengthen us this morning on your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter four, uh, verse one. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What would happen if you were to make a wrong decision? I know this is a stretch, but... Let's just say hypothetically, you made a wrong decision. What would happen? Well, it depends on what you're deciding, right? (laughs) But have you ever been in a place where you felt paralyzed because you didn't know the right thing to do? And you kept going over the data in your head again and again, uh, hoping to figure out what to do, what was best, what was right. And you kept searching your Bible, trying to find that one verse that you overlooked somewhere. uh, And you, you kept asking your friends and asking your parents or asking your pastor, hoping that someone would have some definitive answer. You kept praying genuinely hoping for a voice from heaven, even though you didn't even believe in voices from heaven. Well, what was, what's the problem? What stops us from making decisions? Well, it, it's fear, right? Deep fear. Fear of being wrong. Uh, fear of making a mess out of life. Uh, yes, even fear of missing out, right? Freedom that freedom we have to make choices, to make decisions, can be scary. 
And we often live with what Paul calls a spirit or an attitude of slavery that leads to fear. We heard about that in Romans chapter 8. We're going to see in Galatians this morning that we have received not the spirit of slavery, right, but the spirit, the spirit of sonship. And hopefully we'll see some reasons why that is so important. Well, we are jumping back into Galatians uh, this week after a, a two-month hiatus. And uh, in the church of Galatia, you may remember, there was a controversy. It was revolving around God's promises to Abraham on the one hand and his law given to Moses on the other. And God, way back in, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, had, had given certain promises to Abraham. Uh, particularly the promise that, that God would be his God and the God of his descendants. God promised to care for Abraham and provide for him. But the controversy in Galatia was this, right? God gave a promise to Abraham, but he gave a law to Moses. So in order to receive the promises of Abraham, do you need to keep the law of Moses? That is uh, what some, at least, in Galatia were teaching, that, that if you want God as your God, you have to keep a certain set of rules. Paul, however, taught that, that this is not the case. Uh, we are children of Abraham, not by uh, works, not by works of the law, but by faith. The Mosaic law, Paul teaches, was never meant to have a permanent place in the life of God's people. Uh, yes, the law ordered the life of Israel. It also made known their sin so that they could see their need for forgiveness. And the Mosaic law made known God's method of forgiveness through the sacrifice. And so it pointed Israel forward to God's ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. And so the law was, was a preparation for the coming of Christ, which means that since Christ has come, Paul says the law has fulfilled its role. Yet our hearts tend to drift away from God's grace in Christ and drift back to law. Uh, there's something about having a, a detailed outline for life that seems safe to us. We have a hard time getting our hearts out of law and into gospel. It's easier, though, to walk in God's grace when we understand, as we read through the scriptures and we're trying to put the pieces together, it's easier when we understand uh, the nature of the Old Testament law, what it is all about, uh, really the radical nature of Christ's work, then in light of that, and the character of the life we have now in the Spirit. Those are three really big things, but we're going to talk about them this morning. Um, uh, we're going to see that the life of God's people in the Old Testament was a kind, of, a kind of kindergarten, a kind of training ground for God's people, uh, that the work of Christ brings about maturity in the life of God's people through the gift of the Spirit. It, it graduates us, right, from primary school, the primary school of the law, and brings the church into a new way of walking with our Father. And so our three points, you can see in your bulletin, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, uh, our three points are, are God's kindergarten, uh, graduation day and, and out on your own, question mark. So God's kindergarten. Uh, uh, Paul begins uh, this section with an illustration in verses 1 and 2. Look there again. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Uh, Paul pictures uh, a kid, an underage uh, child who has inherited a fortune, let's say. But if that child is eight years old and inherits a fortune, uh, though he is the owner of everything, he really has no say in anything. Uh, you have legal guardians, right, who, who watch over you, who watch over your fortune until you come of age. In, in the illustration, uh, that's until the date set by the father. It, it doesn't matter that you've inherited the whole estate. Uh, you still get told what to do. You still get told when to go to bed, right? You still get told how to spend your money. Uh, now, any child uh, under 18 living in their parents' home can tell you that their life in their house is a little bit like slavery. But in Paul's illustration, the addition is that at some point this slavery is going to come to an end. The child will enter into the fullness of his inheritance. And then Paul says in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What Paul is saying there is that Israel, under age, right? Israel was enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, the elementary principles that, we'll see that phrase again, actually in verse uh, nine, I think it is. Elementary principles are, are rules for ordering life. Sort of basically, how, this is how, the life, how life works. In one sense, uh, we're all under uh, the moral law all the time. The moral law directs our lives. Our conscience bears witness to it. We know what's right and wrong. But what does it mean for Israel to be enslaved to these elementary principles? You know, Israel wasn't simply under the, the moral law or, or some general law, but, but they were under the law of Moses, what's called the Mosaic law. And, and the Mosaic law was a specific law for a specific time and a specific place. It had specific details. Right? And Israel was under this detailed Mosaic legislation. Now, in many ways, the, the Mosaic law was a blessing for God's people. Right? God, for them, had worked out the details of the moral law for their situation. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Right? Don't you wish God would give you a detailed application of his moral law for your life? Right? Uh, wouldn't it make it easier if God said, okay, set your alarm for this time in the morning, uh, and uh, spend this amount of time in prayer, uh, take this job, marry this person. Right? Isn't that what some of us want? God, just tell us every detail so I don't have to make any decisions. I'll always get it right. Well, what God had given to Israel was a blessing to them. It wasn't quite that detailed, but it was a detailed law. It was a blessing to them. And yet the detailed application of, of the moral law for Israel, it also became a burden. As Peter says in the book of Acts, it was a burden that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Why was this law such a burden for God's people? Well, well one of the ways it became a burden is that the law uh, did not always lead to assurance for Israel. You know, there's this tension in the Old Testament. The, the, the law is good. The law is a blessing. Again, uh, Moses, the Mosaic law spelled out how the moral law was applied to Israel's life. But Israel being a sinful people, right, they, they didn't always keep the law. The law was powerless to change their hearts. Uh, in chapter 322 of Galatians, Paul says that being under the law, 
is the same as being under sin. Why would that be? Well, because the law doesn't change Israel's sinful condition. The law tells them how to live, but it doesn't enable them to live that way. And so to be under law is the same thing as to be under sin for Israel. So being under the law and being under the sin, right, that of course meant that Israel was frequently under God's curse. God repeatedly brought judgment. I mean, read through the Old Testament. You see it again and again. God repeatedly brings judgment upon Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their disobedience. Israel's exile demonstrates that, if nothing else, right? When Israel broke God's law, they received God's curse, and, and they went into exile in Babylon, right? He took the whole nation, or most of the nation, out of their land and took them into a foreign land to discipline them. That curse, that judgment, always seemed to hang over Israel's head, that the condemnation of the law, with all this detailed legislation that they weren't living up to, was always right in front of their eyes, the law was a blessing, but because of their sin, the law brought a curse as well. It didn't help that for Israel, there was a sense in which intimacy with God under the law was actually kind of subpar. Uh, you wouldn't get that from reading the Old Testament, right? On the one hand, the, the tabernacle is the dwelling of God in the midst of his people. This is the, the height of in intimacy, it's like, like a bride and a groom marrying one another and moving in together. God makes a covenant with his people, and then he, then he dwells in their midst in the tabernacle. Of course, the tabernacle didn't contain God, uh, but, but God says he would cause his name to dwell there, and that he, he promises his special presence in that place. He promises to meet with his people right here in the tabernacle. Right? Again, it's, it's the height of intimacy for God's people. God is going to dwell with them. But as we look close, there's a tension here too, right? But yes, Israel can come to God. They can walk in the front door of the tabernacle. They can present their offerings, but then the priests take over. They're the ones who actually offer the offerings on the sacrifice, not the worshiper. Uh, the priests alone go into the holy place day after day to bask in God's presence. The high priest alone goes into the most holy place only once a year. The normal, average Joe Israelite, their life is stuck out in the courtyard, watching intimacy with God take place. From their perspective, in one sense, this is the height of intimacy with God, right? God is dwelling in the midst of his people. But from our perspective, this is really only stage one. Right? This, is, this is the kindergarten school of intimacy with God. And so Israel, Paul says, was enslaved to this law. They were slaves to the detailed legislation of the Mosaic law. They were under a curse because of it, right? They experienced condemnation, judgment. And they were lacking real intimacy with their father. What they had was the height of their day, but as, as kindergarten is the height of the first five years of your life, right? Finally, you get your big boy backpack, you get your big boy lunchbox, you get to go to school, this is exciting. But in retrospect, we realize that kindergarten is just the beginning. And if you were to stop there, you would be missing out. Here is Israel in the kindergarten of God's school. They made it. That's great. But Paul calls it slavery. They are still under sin and condemnation. They are lacking deep intimacy with their father. 
It's practical alienation, right? As they stand far off, they come in the front door, but every aspect of life for Israel tended to make them unclean, unfit for God's presence. And even when they were clean, they could only come into the outer court. They couldn't enter the holy place, much less the most holy place. So it's like they're on the fringe of something great. Well, God doesn't want his kids to stay in kindergarten. He wants them to come to maturity in their relationship with him. Which brings us to the next point. Graduation day, right? Verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 starts out like this. But... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus comes in the fullness of time. In the context, right, the the children were under guardians until the time appointed by their father. And so Jesus comes in the fullness of time, the time appointed by the father, for our freedom, the time appointed from eternity past when God ordained to send his son to bring freedom to his people. So Jesus comes born of a woman, just just like one of us, right? As a person, like every other person, as a human being, like every other human being. Okay, there are some differences, right? There's the virgin birth, that's a significant one. But Paul's point here is that Jesus is a person just like other people. So he can sympathize with other people. He can represent other people, right? Jesus is the man who comes to represent all men. He comes not only as, as the man, he comes as the Jew as well. Right? He's born, under, born of a woman and born under the law. Again, Paul's talking about the Mosaic law, the Jewish law there. And so Jesus comes as, as the man and as the Jew, representing all people, representing all Jewish people as well. Why does he come? He comes, Paul says, to redeem those who were under the law. He is under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Now, the, the word redeem means to purchase. Uh, the word used to talk about, it's a word used to talk about the, the purchase of freedom for slaves. Jesus comes to purchase the freedom of his people. Now, you may be noticing that Paul is mixing metaphors here. Um, He talks about how children come into an inheritance, and then he talks about purchasing uh, freedom for slaves. He's mixing metaphors, right? Why? Because, well, no one metaphor fully captures the whole picture of our salvation. He's trying to give us a fuller picture of what God has done by bringing in these different metaphors. And and the way God's people move from being children, who are no different from slaves, to coming of age and receiving their inheritance, Paul says, is through redemption. Through redemption. Jesus comes to redeem us. He comes to redeem us from the law, Paul says, to purchase our freedom. That freedom from the law must mean all, all the aspects of the law we just talked about. So freedom from the law's supervision, We're no longer bound to the Mosaic legislation. We are free from it. And to purchase redemption must mean freedom from the law's condemnation. We're no longer subject to the curse of the law. So Jesus purchases this, this dual freedom by himself coming under the law's supervision, by perfectly fulfilling the law's demand on behalf of those who are born of woman, on behalf of those who are born under the law, by perfectly uh, fulfilling the law's demand in our place. 
Jesus uh, himself comes under the law's condemnation by perfectly paying the law's penalty uh, in his death on the cross. Jesus, we're told in Scripture, became a curse for us. He himself didn't deserve death because he had no sin, but, but he took death for us in our place. So Jesus redeems us. He frees us from both the supervision of the Mosaic law and the condemnation of the Mosaic law. Jesus redeems us from the law and he redeems us from the curse of the law. He purchases our freedom, purchases our freedom from the Mosaic law, both its supervision and its condemnation. Why does he do that? Well, Christ does that to the end of our adoption as sons. To be free from to, to free us from the law's alienation that we might become God's children. Being under the Mosaic law, again, on some level, was to experience the alienation of sin. Israel knew what it was like to have to stand far off and to watch others go in. Israel was held far off. Every aspect of life seemed to make them unclean, so they had to remain far off at times. But now, Paul says, through the work of Jesus, we have been redeemed from the law. Jesus purchased our freedom from the law. We're no longer slaves, but we have received the adoption as sons. Jesus, the Son of God, took the form of a servant. He was alienated from the Father on the cross so that we, God's servants, might become sons and be received by the Father through the cross. Jesus came to to transition us, right, to graduate us from, from elementary school of the Old Testament law into the fullness of our experience of intimacy, of intimate sonship as children of the Father. Well, then the question becomes, okay, uh, so we were under under age, uh, God's people were under age, slaves to the law, condemned by the law, alienated from God and held far off. Jesus comes born of the law, he receives condemnation, he's forsaken by the Father, alienated at the cross, in order to purchase us freedom, bring us into the status of sons, okay, the question is, what, is that, what does that look like? Right? What does that mean now? What does that new life look like for us? Which brings us to our, our final point, right? Uh, about being out on your own. You know, when we think of coming of age in our culture, when we think of maturity, we think of moving out on your own. The question is, are, are we now out on our own as God's people? Is that what maturity means for the people of God? And, and uh, the answer is no, actually quite the opposite. Um, God is now with us by his spirit. We are precisely not alone, right? So, so what does maturity look like? Well, it, it, it looks like three things, I think, from this passage. Uh, on the one hand, it means we no longer live under the Mosaic law. Okay? The, the law no longer regulates our life with the Father, uh, it means that we now have a new intimacy with the Father. We have the Spirit within, within us crying out, Abba, Father. It means we have assurance. Uh, Paul says in verse 7, we're no longer slaves but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right? We have an assurance of our inheritance. But what does all that look like? Um, well, let's take the example we started with. What, what does the decision-making process right, look like now that we are no longer under the law? We started out talking about how scary it is for some of us to make wrong decisions. Uh, we want to make the right one. We wish God would give us a detailed law. Just 
take all the uncertainty out of life, right? Just tell us what to do. But under the new covenant, there's actually a new kind of freedom. God doesn't give us uh, details for how the moral law applies to every aspect of our lives. We have, we have the moral law, right? That, that still stands. The Ten Commandments still apply. Uh, don't worship other gods. Uh, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery, right? Those kinds of things, that those still apply. The moral law remains because God hasn't changed. But we have to individually, I think even creatively at times, work that out in the details of our lives. We need to make decisions. We need to, to work out the implications of the moral law in the details of day-to-day life. We have the Old Testament legislation as well, right? The Old Testament uh, law is, is a model for us for how that can take place in one particular culture, but none of us happen to live in that one particular culture. And so we have to work out what it will look like in our culture in the here and now. Uh, we do that both as individuals, but also as, uh, as the church together, right? We wrestle with the implications of Scripture, how that applies to us. And so there's, there is a new freedom in the new covenant, a fuller freedom, freedom from the supervision of the Mosaic law, that, that Israel, freedom that Israel didn't have. But freedom is scary. You know, the attitude of a slave is just, just tell me what to do so I can do it right, so everyone will be happy and everything will work out. This isn't bad all the time, right? I mean, uh, that's how we often feel when we start a new job. Uh, we want to we wanna make sure we know exactly what to do, exactly how to do it, so our boss will be happy, everything will work out. But when we carry that over into every aspect of life, it's the attitude of a slave and not a son, an employee and not a child. And so we're afraid because God doesn't give us all those details. He, he, he doesn't. I mean, I wish he did, but he doesn't. And I, I was thinking about this Friday night, uh, I was working on the sermon, it was about 10.30, and uh, I was trying to figure out what to do, right? Should I stay up? Uh, should I keep working on it? Uh, should I go out for a jog, right? Uh, I'm debating what to do, and uh, I start laughing at myself because I'm agonizing about this decision as I'm working on this sermon. Uh, do I stay up? Do I go to bed, right? If I stay up, do I work on the sermon? Do I get some exercise? What should I be doing? And uh, there, is, there was a little bit of agony in it, at least, and... Uh, I had to stop and laugh at myself. And, and uh, you know, in the end, I said, okay, I just need to, to make a decision here and move forward. This is not life-shattering. Um, I need to make a decision in light of what God has said. I, I need to not agonize over this, and I need to trust my Father and, and move forward. But the question is, why can we do that? Right? Why can we trust our Father and move forward? And the answer is because of our sonship. Um, it, it doesn't have to be scary, not because God feeds us exactly what to do in each moment. Right? He doesn't do that. It doesn't have to be scary because God is our Father and we are His children. We're not going to lose our sonship if we happen to make the wrong decision. Because we didn't gain our sonship by making the right decisions. Right? Our sonship is based on the work of Jesus redeeming us from the law's supervision and condemnation so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our sonship cannot be lost. And really, there are even two specific aspects of our sonship that can't be lost that we see in our passage. One, we have received the Spirit, right? Verse 6, again, says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God Himself dwells inside of us, 
crying out, Abba, Father. There are layers of intimacy here, right? God lives in us. It doesn't get much more intimate than that, right? We're not coming to a building somewhere. We're not far off the building. We're not even going into the building, right? God has come to live in us. That's intimate. And God in us, the Spirit in us, enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, to call out to our Father, to to relate to Him as our Father. And so this new intimacy has been generated. We're no longer slaves addressing God as a slave to a master, but we are sons addressing God by the Spirit as beloved children crying out to our caring Father. God is within us, and he, he wants us by the Spirit to call on Him, to cry out to Him, to seek Him out. We don't have to worry about, quote, making him happy. You know, of course we want to please our father. We should want to please our father. But it's the attitude of a slave that says, just tell me what to do so I can, so I can make my master happy and, and, uh, by my work. And no, God says, look, I love you. I'm your father. I'm for you. I'm, I'm cheering you on. I'm caring for you. I'm watching over you. Yeah, here's my law. Here's my word. Now, now go creatively apply that to your life. Go figure out how that applies. Yes, cry out to me. Abba, Father, call to me. Walk with me. But don't keep looking back to, to the, the set of rules, whether the Mosaic Law or, or man-made rules. Right? Look to me so that we can walk together through life. And I'm going to be with you because you're my child and I'm your father and I love you. And so we look to God's word as we seek to walk with him. Uh, not only have we received His Spirit, though, in this new intimacy, but, but we're also heirs. And so uh, this is the, the phrase Paul uses at the end of uh, our section in verse 7. He says, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. What does it mean to be heirs? It means we have an inheritance, right? That's what it means to be an heir. You have an inheritance. Peter calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, Uh, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See what Peter is saying, right? To be heirs is to have hope. Hope that God is going to work everything out. Whatever we might screw up in this life, and there will be a lot, God is going to put everything back together when Jesus returns. That's our hope. Our inheritance is secure because we are sons. All of us, men and women, right, are sons of God. That means we're the ones who receive the inheritance. Our inheritance is something that we're not going to lose because we can't lose our sonship. We have it in Christ. The attitude of slaves, right, just tell me what to do so I can do the right thing so everybody will be happy and everything will turn out right. Well, God says, look, I am happy with you, right? Because you're my child in Jesus. Things will turn out right. Not because you're going to turn them out right, but because you have an inheritance that is secure and kept in heaven. And at the return of Jesus, you will enter into that in its fullness. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about how things will work out because I'm going to work them out. So you don't have to worry about getting everything right. right? Just tell me what to do, we say. 
No, you don't have to worry about getting it right. I'm your father. I love you. I'm working everything out for your good and my glory. I'm the one who's in control after all, not you. Yeah, you, you, you apply my word, you do your best, and I will take care of you. And so you're free to creatively apply my word. Yes, the moral law, right? Apply it to your circumstances, apply it to your situation. Okay, but you might say, well, that's great. I have this inheritance stored up, right? It's waiting to be revealed at the return of Jesus. But what about right now? I know everything's going to work out then. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about things right now. What if I'm trusting my father, making decisions in life, and something bad happens right now? And if I screw this thing up? Well, as uh, Job says, right, shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil also? Um, Our Savior not only trusted his father during his life, but even on the cross, We are to trust our Father in good times as well as the bad, knowing, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, all things will work together for the good of those who love God. And even the struggles that we go through, the trials and the suffering, God is weaving together and working out for our good. Are you going to screw up at times? Of course. Are you going to make wrong decisions? Absolutely. But God's not going to stop loving you in that and through that. The world's not going to come to an end. God's going to be with you. He's still going to care for you. Jesus is still going to come back and make all things new. Now you might think, okay, I I get that. Uh, There are people who agonize over decisions, who overthink, who overanalyze, right, like me. Uh, There are other people, though. Other Christians who who have really just tossed God's word aside altogether, they're making rash decisions, they're running headlong into things, they're unconcerned about what God thinks. What about them, right? Does this text say anything to them? Well, actually, yes, it, it does. I think the text says something there as well. The Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. The Spirit in us directs us to our Father for guidance. So the person who's rushing headlong and not stopping to ask God for wisdom, not stopping to seek God out in his word, just like the person who's paralyzed with fear, he too is not acting like a son. Our sonship means we go to our father, we seek out his wisdom, and then we creatively apply it to our situation. It's neither that God is going to give us a detailed itinerary of what we're to do each day, nor is it that we ignore God and rush headlong into life. But we cry out to our Father as we creatively walk with our Father, as we apply His Word to new situations, new circumstances, new opportunities. As we trust in His fatherly presence, as we rest in His fatherly plan. May it be so for each one of us. Let's pray. Our Father, life would be so easy if you just told us everything to do, we think. And yet we know that you want us to grow up to maturity, uh, to learn to walk. In light of your word, uh, in obedience to you, and yet applying it ourselves. And uh, we don't fully grasp that, uh, why that is. But uh, we pray that you would teach us, Father. Teach us to to rest in your love, to, to rest in the gift of your spirit, to cry out to you as our Father, to know that our inheritance is secure, 
and then to live in light of that without fear. May it be so by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.